that the gospel spread to the Gentiles, right? Now, to this point in Acts, we've been seeing the believers witnessing a lot and preaching boldly, but only to Jews. And then Stephen is martyred, as Trevor led us through a few weeks ago. And after he's martyred, persecution breaks out all over Jerusalem against the church, and it causes the whole church to be scattered. Now, Jesus had commanded that they preach the gospel in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And to this point, they'd pretty much just been hanging out in Jerusalem and Judea together as a church, and they, they had some really healthy things going. But then persecution starts, and they scatter, and they spread out around Judea. They go to Samaria, and this story is the beginning of the gospel spreading to the ends of the earth. It's a huge moment in the history of our faith. So as we unpack this story, the first thing we're going to look at is who is this guy, Philip? Right? So he's, you know, there's kind of two major players here, three. There's Jesus is involved in everything here. And then you have Philip, and then you have the Ethiopian eunuch. So who is this guy, Philip? Now, you might recall that there was actually a disciple named Philip, but that's not this guy. This is Philip the deacon, or often referred to as Philip the evangelist. The first time we see him in the Bible is in Acts 6. And what happens is they record that they appointed seven men to be deacons over the church in Jerusalem. Basically, we need you guys to take care of the church, right? Make sure everybody's taken care of. Make sure, you know, like all the widows are being provided for and, and just, just run things. And they appointed these men to do that so that the apostles would be freed up to be able to go and preach the gospel. Okay? And so we know because he was one of these seven men that he's not one of the apostles, because it wouldn't make a lot of sense to appoint one of these guys you're trying to free up to this job, right? And so another one of these seven men who was a deacon in the church is actually Stephen, who was martyred. Now, most likely, Philip was one of the 3,000 men who responded to Peter's message at Pentecost and gave his life to him there. And the Lord was moving in his life. It was evident, and so they gave him responsibility. And we see Philip just like Stephen, preaching the gospel all around Jerusalem. And then persecution starts and they're scattered. The church kind of explodes and blows up. And, we, and Philip finds himself in Samaria. And so what does he do in Samaria? He preaches the gospel. And he wins a lot of people to the Lord, including a man named Simon the Magician, which is another pretty incredible story that happens at the beginning of Acts chapter 8. And then while he's in the middle of Samaria, people are responding to the gospel. He's got a thriving ministry. He's probably thinking, you know, this is great. Man, the Lord's really moving here. We're about to have like a really awesome church here in Samaria. This is awesome. And then the Lord has some other plans. An angel comes and says, hey, I want you to go to the desert. That's it. <laughs> go to the desert. I mean, I don't know if I'd really want to do that. <laughs> and here's Philip. He's probably, you know, might be thinking, like, I've got this incredible ministry. Like, you want me to leave? Like, there's a lot of work to do here. Like, surely this is too important to leave, but the angel just tells him to go to this desert road. He doesn't tell him what's going to happen there. He doesn't tell him why. He just says go. And so Philip responds in obedience, and he goes. Now, the Bible doesn't say that he questioned this command like Moses questioned, or that he threw a fit like Jonah. He just went and obeyed. Now, remember, obedience is doing what I'm told and doing it quickly because I love God. And this is a beautiful example of obedience to Jesus. Philip gets a command that he probably doesn't understand, and he just says, yes, Lord, and he goes. And so he goes to the desert, and he gets there, and he finds a chariot. And in this chariot is this Ethiopian eunuch. 
Now, who is this man? Who is this Ethiopian eunuch? What's the significance of him? Well, the first thing we see about him, obviously, he's Ethiopian. That means he's come from Africa. He's an African man. So he's not a Jewish man. He's a Gentile. Now, we tend to think of the story of Cornelius with Peter as the, the first time that the gospel starts going to the Gentiles. You know, this, this story where Peter has this vision where this uh, cloth is laid out and on it are all these unclean animals. And the Lord speaks to him and says, arise, Peter, kill and eat. And he's like, I've never eaten anything unclean. And then the Lord says to him, don't call unclean what God has made clean. And he's communicating to Peter that, that he loves the Gentiles too. And he's calling them clean. And he's calling them his. And he wants them to know him. And so Peter goes and he preaches to Cornelius and his whole family gets saved. And it starts this whole thing, right? But before that happens, Philip, just obeying the Holy Spirit, goes and preaches to an Ethiopian eunuch. Now, he's Ethiopian. We also see that he's a eunuch. That means he's been castrated. That probably happened when he was a young boy in order that he could live a life of service. Now, in a lot of ancient cultures, they would castrate servants who were going to serve in royal houses so that there would be no possibility of sexual misconduct as they grew up. And that's probably what happened here. He was probably picked as a young boy to be a servant in the royal house. We see he's a servant of Candace, the queen of Ethiopia. And most scholars would say that Candace was probably a title, not a name, kind of like Pharaoh was the name of the king of Egypt. Candace would be the queen of Ethiopia. And we see he's over all of the treasure. Now, that's a pretty big position. He's a really successful man. He's got a lot going on here. He's been given a lot of weight and responsibility. We also see he's an intelligent man. He's an educated man. And he's hungry for truth. He's come to Jerusalem specifically to worship. Now, that implies he went there to go to the temple and to worship God, the real God. So somehow this Ethiopian man knew that the God that the Israelites talked about was really God. And he was hungry to know him. So much so that he took this long journey to come to Jerusalem and worship. And we find him reading scripture. We don't know if he got this scroll when he was in Jerusalem or if he brought it with him. But he's in his chariot after having gone to Jerusalem to worship. And he's studying scripture, trying to understand. Now it's pretty amazing that this man would worship God. As we said, he's not a Jew. And the Jews tended to look down on Gentiles. And they weren't exactly known for being inviting. He's also a eunuch. That's another big thing that the Jews would look down on. That's a shameful thing to them. So he's a Gentile and he's a eunuch. He would have been rejected by the Jewish people in Jerusalem. Looked down on, maybe even mocked. At the temple, he wouldn't be allowed beyond the outer circle, which is where he would have to worship, being a Gentile. But despite all of this, but all of these barriers to him meeting God, he's hungry to know him. And he's not going to stop at any length. He's studying scripture, trying to understand, trying to, to know about God. And while the Jews would have rejected him, maybe even mocked him, God knew him. And God saw him. And everywhere that there's a hungry heart that reaches out for God, he responds. There are no lengths he won't go to meet that one person. He took Philip away from a thriving ministry in a crowded city, hungry for him, and sent him to the desert to meet this man. If you're here tonight and you don't know God, and maybe you wonder if you ever could, he longs to know you too. And if you will reach out to him, he will reach out to you. There are no lengths he does not go to to reach hungry hearts. It doesn't matter who we are. It doesn't matter what we look like or where we're from or what we've done. He loves us, and he came for us and died for us. 
Even the people we tend to think would be the last ones that might come to him. He knows us. And he longs for us to know him. There are no little people. And there is no one whom the gospel is not true. Even an Ethiopian eunuch in the eyes of the Israelites. And we find him reading a piece of Isaiah. In fact, he's reading from Isaiah chapter 53. If you're familiar with that scripture, I mean, obviously we saw a little piece of it here. It's a prophecy that directly speaks about Jesus. Let's read a little bit more of that passage. We're going to start in verse 3 of Isaiah 53 and read down to verse 11. It says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. So who is this talking about? <laughs> it's Jesus, right? And this is what the eunuch is reading as he's riding in his chariot, and he's trying to understand what, what is this about. Maybe there's something in him that's sparked with hope, like bear the iniquities of us all? Like me? Who is this that the prophet writes about? And God sent Philip to him. You've got to understand that this passage was actually written hundreds of years before Jesus was born, even though it describes his life to a T. It was a prophecy. And, you know, there's been a lot of people who try to argue, like, ah, that had to have been added in later. Probably some monks added that in, like, you know, the 5th century or something. That, I mean, that's too, that's too dead on. That can't have been before Jesus. But we actually know that it was written before Jesus because we have a manuscript from the Dead Sea Scrolls that's dated to before Jesus of this exact passage, and it's not changed at all. The Bible's pretty amazing. And so this is what the eunuch is studying when Philip finds him. He asked for help understanding, and this is why Philip was sent. And so Philip preaches the gospel as the Holy Spirit speaks through him, and the eunuch responds and gives his heart to Jesus. The first recorded Gentile convert. And there's records after this of a church springing up in Ethiopia. Go figure. <laughs> the gospel is moving to the ends of the earth. It's kind of funny, you know, Jesus said, preach the gospel in Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And Philip has been involved in all three at this point. Go, Philip. And after he baptizes this eunuch, the Holy Spirit, he teleports Philip. I mean, that's what happens, right? It's like he's there, and then all of a sudden he's in another place. And he's like, it says he found himself in Azotus. Like he's like looking around like, 
And then he's like, I guess I should preach. And so he starts preaching. And the unit comes out of the water, and he looks around, and he's like, Philip's gone. So he's like, well, I'm, I guess I'll praise God. And he goes on his way, goes to Ethiopia. So Azotus was like, like, we don't know exactly how far, but it was multiple miles away from where he was. It's pretty amazing, right? The Holy Spirit did some pretty cool things. I think he'd do some pretty cool things with us, too, if we could obey him. We see what God does in us, he wants to do through us, and through this man, a church begins in Ethiopia, and a lot of people meet Jesus. But it all starts with Philip saying yes to Jesus, and going to a desert road. I mean, how easy would it have been for Philip to be like, like I don't know about this. I mean, look, look at all these people responding here in Samaria. Look at this ministry. Like, there's work to be done here. This is good stuff. This is good work that needs to be done. He's having success. People are meeting Jesus. I mean, a desert? Like, nobody wants to go to the desert. It's hot. It's sandy. I mean, sand's the worst. You know, it's like coarse and rough and irritating. It gets everywhere. Everybody hates sand. It's the worst. I'd definitely rather stay in the city surrounded by people hungry for Jesus than go to the desert. But Philip doesn't question. He doesn't argue. He doesn't resist. He just obeys. You see, Philip understands who Jesus is. And because he understands who Jesus is, he understands who he is. Remember, Jesus is king. He's Lord. And he is the one who's in charge. And Philip understood what happened when he gave his life to him. When he called him Lord, it meant Jesus was in charge. Period. What he says goes. When we come to Jesus and we give our lives to him, it's not about us. It's not about what we're going to get out of it. It's not about getting a ticket to heaven or a mission into some special club or any comfort we're going to get out of it. Now, don't get me wrong. We're very blessed to walk with Jesus. And there's a lot of joy and blessings in it. It's incredible. He welcomes us into his family. He gives us his name, and he calls us his. But we're not called sons and daughters of the king so that we can live cushy and comfortable in a palace or in a church pew. We're not an audience. We're an army. And the Bible likes to refer to believers as servants. You see, throughout the gospel, Jesus refers to his people as servants and God as the master in his parables. We see throughout the epistles, Paul refers to himself and other believers as bond servants to Christ. That means like an indentured servant. That's like servant to the next level. <laughs> When we come to Christ, when we give our lives to him, we enter his service. We become servants to Jesus. And what does a servant do? They serve. They obey. They function for the sake of their master, doing what is asked of them, period, because they're a servant. That's what they do. The Bible also refers to believers as soldiers. Like we said, we're an army. An army with a mission. And Jesus set that mission clearly for us in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Make disciples of all nations. We are the salvation army of the cross. And if we are in the army of the cross, that means we are soldiers. And what does a good soldier do? He follows orders. He obeys his commander. He is in the hands of the one who is in command. 
We see in the Gospels a centurion talking to Jesus, and he says, I say to one soldier, go, and he goes, and another, come, and he comes. And Jesus marvels at how well he understood the way the kingdom works. Because this is what soldiers do. They follow orders. I mean, even when Scripture calls us sons and daughters, that means responsibility. When we look at the culture this was written to, a son or daughter, there's certainly intimacy and there's certainly relationship. That's there. But there's also responsibility. Children were expected to work. You got to work the ground. You got to take care of the livestock so we can eat. And a good son, a good daughter, obeys their father. I mean, throughout Scripture, one of the most repeated commandments is obey your father and mother. Sonship or daughtership to the king means responsibility. It means we are to obey him. So often we'd rather live like a trust fund kid. Like, yeah, I'm your son, but I mean, I know you're busy and important. You got other things going on. We don't really have to have much relationship. I'm, I'm good with the money and the blessings. Instead of being a servant or a soldier, a lot of times we'd rather be a customer. And we're here for the product. That's not what God called us to. Are our lives marked by obedience to Jesus? Or do we approach him like we're consumers? Just taking blessings from him. This is, you know, so often why our prayers can sound like angry calls to customer service. Like, look, my day is going terrible. The girl I like rejected me. I failed my tests. I don't have a lot of money. I mean, what's going on? You're supposed to bless me, God? That's not how it works. And that's not who God is. He's not a vendor offering us goods. He's king. And you bow to a king. Andrew Murray put it this way. Beware of praying only for a blessing. Let us seek first obedience, and God will supply the blessing. Our constant question as Christians should be, how can I obey and please God perfectly? How can I obey and please God perfectly? Remember, friends, we're sinners who've been saved by grace. And that means we didn't deserve it. There's nothing in us that deserved the cross. There's nothing in us that deserved being part of the family of God. To know him, to have a relationship with him, to walk with him. We can never earn salvation, and he doesn't owe us anything. In fact, we owe him everything because he gave himself for us when we didn't deserve it. And if we see him for who he is and see what he's actually done for us when we didn't deserve it, the only response that makes any sense is to bow and say, command me, king as a servant, as a soldier, as a good son or daughter. You know, I think sometimes we have a hard time with that. You know, being a servant or a soldier, even a son in this context, it means putting our lives in the hands of somebody else. And we live in a culture that is pretty independent. And we're all about our independence. And we hear about these terms, servant, soldier, and immediately negative things come to mind. I mean, look, there's been a lot of bad masters for servants throughout history. I mean, if we even look at our own lives, think of our employers, like, we've probably all had a bad boss, right? Like somebody who was just made bad decisions, didn't know what they were doing, or maybe even was, was harsh or cruel or treated us poorly. And it's like, you know, I don't want to be in that situation again. And it's even worse for a soldier. A bad commander could cost his life. And throughout history, thousands and thousands of men have died because of bad command. 
You know, the only reason the U.S. Civil War was as long as it was, and the South almost won, is because the generals in the North were terrible. <laughs> they continually made bad decisions, and they replaced them over and over again. You got a picture of, there was a ton of guys in charge of the, uh, the Army of the North. I think we have a picture. Maybe we don't. And finally, Grant took over. There it is. These guys. I mean, look at the facial hair there. I love that guy on the top left with the, like, sideburns. You know what his name was? Burnside. Go figure. But finally, Ulysses Grant took command, and he went and won the war. It took him four years. At the start of World War I, commanders of most of the Allied nations didn't understand that warfare had changed because technology had changed. They approached the war like they could fight the way Napoleon had centuries ago with these heroic, noble charges, taking ground from the enemy. But those heroic charges don't exactly work against entrenched machine gun nests. And thousands of men died over and over again to teach them that this is not going to work. It got so bad that at one point, almost half of the French army mutinied. So we're not following these men anymore. And left. I mean, it was like an open road to Paris if the Germans had seen it. So France put another man in charge who the, the men trusted and they came back. Otherwise, the Allies would have lost World War I. I mean, even when we think about being obedient to a father, for so many of us, we don't have a good example of a loving father. Maybe our fathers were harsh with us or not even around. But we have to leave these human examples behind and look at the one we're actually called to bow to, the one we're called to serve, to take commands from. It's Jesus. And Jesus is good. He knows everything. He's wise. He loves us enough to give himself for us. I mean, a master, a commander, a father who gave himself for us, it's a very different thing. He's never given a bad command. He's never been harsh or cruel, and his motives are pure. He's trustworthy, even if maybe we're not. So do we trust him? Philip did. He understood that following Jesus meant bowing, like a good servant or a good soldier or a good son. And like a good servant, a good son, a good soldier, he was ready for commands. He was in the midst of a thriving ministry. Things were going amazing in Samaria, but there was no questioning or arguing or hesitating when the Lord gave the command. I mean, he didn't even seem surprised. An angel shows up and he's like, okay, time to go. And he goes. There's absolutely no indication that he understood at all why God was sending him to the desert. <laughs> For him, the reality that God had spoken was enough. Obedience is doing what I'm told quickly, because I love God. That's what Philip did. You know, life for a servant or a soldier or even a son or daughter on a farm isn't easy. It's challenging, but it is simple. It's very simple. You simply follow orders. You obey. In order to be a good servant or a good soldier or a good son or daughter, you just do what we're told quickly with love. And Philip lived a life of simple obedience. And God used him to change the world. He changed the world. And we always like to say here that God can change the world from Huntsville, Texas. We believe it. We've seen it happen. 
People from this university are all over the world sharing the gospel and literally changing the world. And we believe God wants to do it again. And we'll do it again. But friends, the world is not going to be changed from here because of our cleverness. Or because of how good we are. Or because we know how to do ministry right. Frankly, we're not that smart or that capable to be able to change the world. But God knows what he's doing. And if we want to actually change the world from right here in Huntsville, the only way is for us to live lives of obedience, listening to our king. A servant lives in a way that he's expectant to be called upon. He's expecting to hear his master's voice and ready to do what is asked of him. A soldier lives expecting orders to come and ready to go march and to do as he's told. A good son or daughter expects that they're going to receive instruction from their father. And they're ready to do what they're asked. And we see Philip's life, and he expected the command was going to come. He's not surprised, and he's ready. He was ready to obey before the command even came. This is a life of obedience. Do we live that way? Could we live that way? Do we expect that God, our king, our master, our commander, our father, might actually command us? He might actually speak to us and ask us to do something. As we walk around day to day, as we go to class, go to campus, go to work, go to the gym, do we expect that he might speak to us? That maybe there might be a command from my master, from my commander. He's in charge and our lives are his. So we should expect that he will command us. That's who he is. And the reality is there are things he wants to do on our campus, in our classes, in our workplaces, everywhere we go. And if we will listen and obey him, we can be a part of what he wants to do. It shouldn't be a shock when he calls on us and says, hey, I want you to go talk to that person. Hey, I want you to pray for them. Hey, I want you to take a little detour and go over here. It shouldn't be a surprise because he's king and he's in charge. Do we live lives of obedience like Philip? Worship team, you can go ahead and make your way back up to the front. We're moving towards a close. You know, what if when we go to campus tomorrow or, or on Monday or when we go to work this weekend, we go to the store, we go out to lunch, what if we went with some expectancy that God might want to do something? He might have something to say to me. What if we didn't just put in headphones and try to get through class or get through our shift or get through our workout at the gym and just go home? But what if we were prepared to obey our king? What if as we went, wherever we were going, we asked, Lord, is there anything you want to do today? Would you speak to me? Because I'm ready to obey. What might happen if we live that way in our classes, on our campus, amongst our coworkers, the people around us everywhere we go? What if we asked our king to command us? God, would you show me what you want to do around me today? These people all around me, Lord, what do you want to do? 
Speak to me whatever you want to speak. Ask me whatever you want to ask me. I'll do it. Because I love you. What would happen? Philip obeyed, and the ripple effects were huge. He changed the world. And we have <laughs> no way to count how many lives were impacted by this simple step of obedience. God knows what he's doing. He knows every hungry heart around us every day. He knows where they are. He knows what they need. He knows when they need a touch or an encounter. He has a plan. He's a good commander. And we should be ready to listen to him. Are we willing to do that? To live lives of simple obedience. Say, Lord, use me. Today. However you want to use me. Can we make a simple prayer like that a part of our day-to-day life? And then when he speaks to us, as we'll be expecting him to, actually obey. If we do that, we will change the world from Huntsville, Texas in ways we could never imagine, but God can. Are we willing to bow before our king? Say, Lord, would you command me? Not just for some, like, big, massive altar moment, but day to day. Whatever you want, Lord. I love you and I trust you. Let's meet with Jesus tonight. And let's bow. Let's ask him to meet with us. If we've approached him like consumers, looking for a product, let's repent. Say, I'm sorry, God. You don't owe me anything. I love you and I want to give everything to you and I bow to you. Let's meet with Jesus tonight. Let's pray. Lord, we love you, Jesus. God, we thank you that you came and you gave yourself for us, Lord. God, you were so good and so gracious with us. We thank you for the cross, Jesus. And Lord, we bow to you, Father. God, we're sorry for the ways we've come expecting you to do things for us without being willing to bow to you and do what you ask us, Jesus. Would you help us, Lord, to live lives of obedience, to go where you want to send us, to do what you want us to do, that your kingdom could be built all around us. Would you have your way in our lives, Jesus? In your name we pray. Amen. Let's meet with Jesus. Let's bow to him. Let's ask him to command us.